Well, praise the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's continue our worship now uh, by turning to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Uh, We're going to continue in our our look here at this Jerusalem council. And we're going to be looking at verses... (coughs) uh, We're going to start at verse 19. And we're going to go all the way to verse 35. So if you turn there, Acts 15, 19 through 35... This is God's word, and if you'd please stand with me for the reading of God's word, we stand out of reverence for the word of the Lord. Verse 19, (coughs) this is James speaking. Therefore, my judgment is that we should not trouble those of the Gentiles who turn to God, but should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols and from sexual immorality and from what has been strangled and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send to them, and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And they sent Judas, called Barsabbas and Silas, leading men among the brothers with the following letter. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers who are the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia, greetings. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instructions, it has seemed good to us, having coming to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have therefore sent Judas and Silas, who themselves will tell you the same things by the word of mouth. For it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements, that you abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. If you keep yourselves from these, you will do well. Farewell. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that you would be blessed by the reading of your word and that you would bring glory to your holy name through this time. Just prepare our hearts to receive uh, this divinely inspired truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. I want you to imagine yourself living in the Syrian province of the Roman Empire in the first century. Uh, A couple years ago, you were living out your life like normal. You wake up, you pray to your God, you go to work, you're interacting with your fellow tradesmen. You go out after work and you have a couple drinks, all gearing up for the weekend sacrifice. While you get to the pagan temple, you pay your respects to Zeus or Apollo or Artemis or whatever god you happen to be worshiping at the time. Then you go into one of the back rooms with 
one of the cult prostitutes, one of the goddesses of Daphne. After you leave the temple, you stop in the marketplace, you buy some of the meat left over from the temple sacrifice. This is typically a calf or a a bull which was killed and then split into thirds between the temple god's burnt offering, the temple priest, and this fine delicatessen where the local meat man wraps it up for you to take home to your wife and kids. All the while, you feel totally, hopelessly empty and unsatisfied. And you're thinking to yourself, what in the world am I doing here? What is this life? Why am I here? What am I doing on this earth just chasing these things which never seem to satisfy the longings of my heart? To what end am I living out my days? Now that I think of it, what will will the end be like? What happens when I die? Will I awake to these gods who never seem to be satisfied either? What will they think of me? Will they accept me into the life thereafter? Is there even... Life after this one. Who is the real God? Who actually made the earth and the sky and the sea and all that is in it? And then a few days later, you wake up, you start going through the same routine. You're heading out to work, but this time on your way, you bump into this guy. He's a Jew. He's from the island of Cyprus, and he's telling you about his God. And he's quoting the former king of Israel, King David. He says, when I look into your heavens... The work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him? And the son of man that you care for him? Now you're familiar with the God of Israel, but you don't know of his full character or true identity because you don't like the Jews and the Jews don't like you either. Yet, here is this man who is persistent in telling you about the God of Israel and about his character, not only how he made the world and everything in it, but also how he abounds in steadfast love and mercy. How he has bestowed upon his people a grace, an amazing, eternal grace, which your gods have never once spoken of. Then he tells you that you, even you, a Greek, can have fellowship or right relationship with the God of Israel. That you are a sinner. In fact, you were born into sin because you inherited it from the first man, Adam. And even on your own, you violated his holy law. Even the law written on your heart. And that because he is just and because he is righteous and holy, he must punish that sin for all of eternity. But he is as merciful as he is just. In fact, he is rich in mercy. And being rich in mercy, he sent his one and only son into this world. You may have heard of him, Jesus of Nazareth. He sent Jesus into this world to be born of a virgin. He had no earthly father, which means he didn't inherit that sinful nature like all of us did. He was born of a virgin. He was conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit of God. He was born under the law, but because he was perfect, because he was God in human flesh, he was able to keep that law in its entirety with no deviation from the right to the left. He always obeyed his Father in heaven. And yet, it was the will of the same Father to crush the Son. It was the will of Yahweh, or the God of Israel, to crush his Son from before the very foundations of the world. He had a 
perfect plan to offer his son as a sacrifice for all who would believe in him and call upon his name for both the forgiveness of their sin, for salvation from his righteous wrath, which we all deserve. And this Jewish man says, not only was Jesus put to death, sacrificed on a Roman cross, shed his blood, bearing the penalty for, of sin for all who would believe in this gospel, but God then raised him from the dead three days later, demonstrating that the sacrifice was sufficient, guaranteeing that all who believe in him will be raised to eternal life as well. He then tells you, uh, you know, at, at first, we thought this was just for the Jews. At first, we thought this was just for the chosen people of God. Then we remember how God made a covenant with Abraham, saying all the nations of the earth will be blessed through him. Then we remembered how the prophets spoke of a time when Gentiles would be included into God's perfect plan of redemption. Then we, re- we remember how Jesus himself even said that we should be witnesses of this very gospel, the one I'm sharing with you right now that would go outside of Jerusalem, out to Judea, all of Judea, to Samaria, to the very ends of the earth, and that's exactly what has happened. The gospel is spread just like Jesus said it would, all the way up to these Roman provinces here, provinces here, all the way up to this very moment that you're hearing the good news of salvation for the first time. And you ask, but what do I have to do to be saved? And the man says, believe in the gospel. And trust in and put your faith in what I just told you. And though you can't articulate it or even explain how, you reply, I, I do believe the word that you just share with me. And the, and the man says, then repent of your sin." Turn from your idolatry, your sinful ways, and turn to your creator. Turn to the God of the heavens and the earth through his Christ, Jesus of Nazareth. And live out the rest of your days in obedience to his commands. Live out the rest of your days in a way that's honoring and pleasing to him. And you say again, but what do I have to do to be saved? And he says, believe. But what about giving sacrifices? No, no. Just believe. What about giving money to the temple? No. Believe. What about giving up smoking or licentious behavior or my foul language? Don't I have to clean up my life first? He says, no, no. Those things will happen as you mature in your faith, as the Holy Spirit of God convicts you of these sins and guides you and confirms you, uh, conforms you into the image of Christ. But none of those things are required for salvation. You cannot earn your justification before a holy God. What about baptism? I've heard of some of your kind getting baptized. No, we can do that later. But surely there must be some kind of work involved to earn the favor of such a righteous and just God. He says, you're right. There was a work required, but it was the work of Jesus Christ himself on the cross at Calvary. And he said, it is finished. Salvation is the same for both Jew and Greek. It is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. All of a sudden, your life is no longer meaningless. All of a sudden, you have a peace that surpasses all understanding. You have true contentment, a 
a, a true satisfaction which none of those idols or, or sexual encounters or money or power or fame or food or anything this fleeting culture can offer you would satisfy. Now you have new friends. Now you have a new family, a, a church family. It's a, a family made up of both Jew and Greeks. It's a body in the Antioch of, Antioch of Syria. There's fellowship, there's encouragement, there's comfort and peace and love and servanthood. Everybody's serving one another. All to the praise and glory, not of themselves, not of yourself or other people or some God that doesn't even exist, but all to the glory of the God of the heavens and the earth, the God who you are now called to glorify and enjoy forever. Uh, For the first time in your whole life, in your whole existence, you have True contentment and true satisfaction, true love, true peace, true joy, and true hope. True hope. But some men came down from Judea and began teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Next thing you know, division, conflict, strife, worry, fear. That's what all false teaching does, right? It never brings joy. It always brings confusion. It always brings pain. It always brings chaos to the souls of those who are swayed by it. As the false teachers themselves, the children of Satan, do the work of their father always seeking to disrupt the unity experienced within the body of Christ. But in the end, as we'll see even today, true members of the body will only be strengthened. As the gospel of grace, the sufficiency of God's grace is uh, confirmed, affirmed, and reaffirmed as it's faithfully declared for all believers in all generations through his holy and inspired word. And over the past couple of weeks, we've seen this confirmation, Right? We've seen that anything outside of salvation by grace alone through faith alone is antithetical to or incompatible with God's perfect plan of redemption. And should there be any among us who think they've earned their salvation or justification before a holy God based on anything they've done, any external works or practices or adherence to certain customs or religious traditions, anybody who believes that anything outside of faith alone is what saves them, these are the men and women who are actually outside of true and saving faith. Because it's these men and women who say that Christ's sacrificial death wasn't sufficient and they had to pick up where he fell short. And that's blasphemy rooted in unbelief of which they will not be forgiven. So it's done. It's finished. Salvation is by grace alone. That's been settled in the first 18 verses. This is monumentally significant here. Now, now the shift comes, okay? And I have to emphasize this, and I have to re-emphasize it. Now the shift comes, okay? Uh, Now the shift comes from, okay, I'm saved as a Gentile, and you're saved as a Jew, to how are we going to coexist in a way where we don't drive each other nuts? How are we going to operate within the church, even a local church, and not continually cause one another to stumble or be 
offended. We're all believers. We're all saved by that same all-sufficient grace of God. We are all children of God. We're all members of the same body. Now, how do we function within the body? How do we operate within the body? How do we, as members of the same body, work together for the building up of the body for the glory of the head, who is Christ? How do we now live as Jew and Gentile, now made to be brothers in Christ? And that's a huge statement in itself, that word brothers there. If you were like that guy that we opened with, to say that a Jew is your brother, or vice versa, would have been unthinkable. Yet, look at what Jewish James and the Jewish apostles, the Jewish elders, and the whole Jewish church in Jerusalem refer to them as in verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers. To the brothers who are of the Gentiles, Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Cilicia, greetings. The brothers to the brothers. How do we now live as brothers in the Lord Jesus Christ? When, when the differences uh, between Jew and Greek are so glaringly obvious here, how can this possibly work? How can we possibly function as a healthy body should? Well, James says in verse 19, here's a start. He says, my judgment is that we should not trouble or agitate or stir up those of the Gentiles who turn to God. And you know what? We don't want them to stir us up either. We don't want them to agitate us either. So, we should write to them to abstain from the things polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, and from what has been strangled, and from blood. For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he has read every Sabbath in the synagogue. What we're talking about here is fellowship, or koinonia. Uh, a togetherness, a commonality, otherwise known as table fellowship, fellowship among all of God's children, male or female, Greek or Jew, slave or free. We are now followers of Christ, which means we have liberties in Christ. We are no longer under the heavy, unbearable yoke of the law because Christ fulfilled the law and died for those who could never live up to it, right? That's what Paul says in Romans uh, 10. Christ is the end of the law, so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. We are no longer under the law, but we are under God's all-sufficient grace, right? However, we still have a reverence for the Lord and his law, and his commands, and his word. It's not just go on sinning so that grace may abound, uh, Paul would ask this very question, are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. That means God cares how we live as believers. This is not cheap grace. The Bible doesn't teach a cheap grace. We don't just do whatever we want, whenever we want, however we want, with whoever we want, and say that we're covered by the blood when we have to stand before him and give an account. That's just not how it works. Paul says to believers... Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one uh, whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Of course he cares how we live. Why? Because we're his slaves. We are now slaves to righteousness, and slaves obey their master. Okay, we all agree with that. So how do we then fellowship and and come together with one another when the, the levels of freedom and adherence to our master's commands seemingly fluctuate from believer to believer? That's what this section is all about. How does this balance work? How are we going to fellowship? This is all about fellowship. Maintaining unity within the body regarding non-essential practices. These are non-essentials. And as we saw last week, James had a solution for some of the major differences. He called for abstinence of four main things which might bring an offense. Three have to do with food, and one has to do with sexual immorality or uh, immoral behavior. The first thing he says is abstain from the things polluted by idols. Now, this, just, this isn't just for Jews, though Jews would have no doubt been offended by this. Uh, they took animal sacrifices very seriously, very seriously to the meticulous detail. Malachi 1 says, A son honors his father and a servant his master. If I then am a father, where is my honor? And if I have a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you, O priests who despise my name. But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. Uh, To bring a blind or blemished animal to the altar uh, to be sacrificed was contemptuous. It was strictly forbidden. That's what these priests were doing. Likewise, the Jews were then taught to eat nothing sacrificed to idols because the entire pagan sacrificial system was an affront to the one true God. So I said, don't do it. But for Greeks, it was different, okay? Gentiles always ate food that was sacrificed to idols. In fact, the leftovers of the pagan temple sacrifices is where you got the finest meat. It's where you got the best deals in town. They'd uh, take the... uh, organs and the entrails of the animal and they'd burn it before their god then they'd split up the choice parts between the priests and the street vendors who would then sell it to the public but james anticipates some jews saying you know what that is super offensive i can't even think about that let alone watch you eat something that's undergone such a profane process so james says abstain from partaking for the sake of your brothers That sounds reasonable, right? Now again, Paul will go on to talk about this in his epistles, and in doing so, he identifies the type of believer who might be offended at such a thing. Turn with me to Romans 14. You have to look at it in your own Bible. Romans 14. Don't just take my word for it. Romans 14, verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. But not to quarrel over opinions. He identifies these people as immature believers. Believers save, to be sure, but weak in their faith. This is why 
some in circles of uh, Messianic Judaism or Hebrew roots movement, they don't think too much of the Apostle Paul because the Apostle Paul tells it how it is. Okay? He exposes their allegiances to customs and traditions even at the expense of comprehending the mercies they've been shown just like Jesus did with the Pharisees. He says in verse 2, one person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. He's saying that uh, Jews who are strong in the faith, they don't get hung up on ceremonial laws. They don't get hung up on customs or traditions or uh, holidays from their time in Judaism, including uh, food sacrificed to idols here. And he'll say mature Gentiles don't get hung up on idols either because they know that idols have no power. They're, They're figures of God who don't exist. But weak men and women from both groups are always looking back and focusing on how not to violate their conscience. They're not necessarily wrong. uh, They're just immature. That's what it says. You can look for yourself. Watch this in verse 3, though. Uh, Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. Uh, Paul calling these believers weak is not judgment. It's just telling the truth. It's just telling uh, divinely inspired truth. Some are weak, but they have the freedom to abstain, so don't judge them. We don't look down on folks who are weak in the faith. How could we? They're our brothers and sisters in Christ. On the contrary, we should love them, not become an offense to them. Uh, He'll go on to say, let us not pass judgment on uh, one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and I am persuaded in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. He ends up saying, do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. It's verse 20. Everything is clean. Everything indeed is clean. But it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It's good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. And there it is. That's Acts 15, 19 through 35 in a nutshell. Okay? And it was an ongoing theme throughout the first century, this this maintaining of harmony, the, the unity experienced by these two separate and distinct groups, but who are now members of one body all working together for the glory of the head. Turn over to uh, 1 Corinthians 8, and you'll see the same thing. 1 Corinthians 8. This is very important. Uh, 1 Corinthians 8, verse 1. Now concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. However, Paul says, this knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. But if anyone loves God, he is known by God. Again, this is a reference to strong and weak believers. 
The one who knows is the stronger believer. He, he knows the freedoms that he has in Christ, and his conscience isn't violated by eating that which is declared clean, uh, namely all food. He can eat all food. It's all been declared clean. Even food that's offered to fake idols. Verse 4, Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence that there is no God but one. For although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom all things, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. He says, I can eat food offered to an idol. It doesn't bother me at all. Idols don't exist. They're false, they're false gods. You think I'm afraid of being attacked or cursed by a God who doesn't even exist? They're fake. Uh, that's why we have no qualms speaking of, against Allah or the gods of Hinduism or Mormonism and other religions. We're not afraid of retribution or retaliation from their gods because their gods aren't real. They don't exist. Come on. So eat that meat if your conscience isn't bothered by it. Go ahead. You have that freedom in Christ, but don't be puffed up about it. Don't boast about it or rub it in somebody's face because you may cause your brother to stumble and look like a big old jerk in the process. Paul says it himself, food will not commend us to God. He says we're no worse off if we do not eat and we're no better off if we do eat it. But take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. For if anyone sees you who, who have knowledge eating, <coughs> excuse me, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, this brother for whom Christ died. Thus, Sinning against your brother and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, Paul says, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. 1 Corinthians 8. Now, that's a lot of text, I know. Let me give you an illustration here, okay? Say I have a friend whose name is Jim Bob. Now, I don't have any friends named Jim Bob, but that sounds exciting to me. So we're going to go with Jim Bob. So Jim Bob and I go over to Santiago's for a breakfast burrito. Now, we just happen to go on a Monday, and everybody in Denver knows that on Monday they have ham in their breakfast burritos. But Jim Bob, a fellow believer, is weak. He's very weak. And he says, man, you know, I don't eat ham. I don't eat pork. Now, if I were to say, dude, come on, grow up. We have freedom in Christ. Just enjoy it. It's delicious. You're going to love it. All things have been declared clean. Enjoy. Well, if Jim Bob says, oh, okay, I guess, and he starts eating that burrito, what just happened there? Well, what just happened is we've both sinned, okay? <coughs> I've sinned against my brother. I've caused him to stumble by urging him to violate his conscience. And he has sinned by violating his conscience due to, th to the convictions placed on him not by God, but by his fellow man. We've both sinned. Much better for me to say, I understand, brother. Let's go over to Alameda Burrito on Mississippi 
get one of their ground beef breakfast burrito, which frankly, they taste better anyhow. Don't tell those guys at Santiago's I said that. <laughs> Keep that between us. <laughs> Paul says elsewhere, he says, uh, all things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. And boy, isn't that the truth. Just because we can do it doesn't mean we should do it. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. He says, let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. He says, in the end, strong or weak, we all live for the same goal as brothers, and that's to give thanks to and honor to and glory to the Lord. James essentially says the same thing right here in this letter. If eating meat sacrificed to idols seriously offends the weaker brother, why in the world would you want to do that? Why would you do that to somebody? You may be a hindrance to their growth, or as we'll see, even uh, non-believing Jews coming to faith in the first place. Why would you do that? (laughs) Okay, go back to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. We're going to notice how, just at the beginning, he doesn't do this in in the letter, but... Just at the beginning where he's giving these four things, he shifts gears uh, right in the middle of verse 20 to say, and sexual immorality, or porneia, saying, you know, the wantonness of the Gentiles with regard to their sexual practices isn't going to fly when we're talking about Jewish-Greek relations here. Much like our day uh, here in America, there was really no reverence or, uh, for the sanctity of marriage. You know, there, there wasn't really a, a reverence for the godly institution of marriage at all. Uh, now, if you read the Old Testament, you know that the Jews of Israel weren't exactly a bastion of biblical sexual morality either. Um, sexual immorality can refer to any uh, sexual act outside of the God-ordained union between one man and one woman. This is all-encompassing uh, all here. Um, homosexuality, immoral. Bestiality, immoral. Fornication, sex before marriage, immoral. Jesus came on the scene and said, man, if you even look at a woman with lust, you've committed adultery with her in your heart. Sexual thoughts about a woman who is not your wife, immoral. Damnable. Uh, But here, regarding the instruction to these first century Gentiles, what James is likely referring to is cult prostitution. The priestesses, Uh, in the holy sites, in these temples, were actual prostitutes, temple prostitutes. And he says, abstain from laying with them, abstain from going into them. You you will destroy your witness and your testimony for Christ. So abstain from sexual immorality. He then talks about abstaining from that which has been strangled and from the blood, he says. Again, going back to food here. The Gentiles had a a practice. They would either smother their food or they would strangle their their animals and then they would eat them. And they did this intentionally so that the meat remained saturated with the blood. Okay? They wanted that blood in there. It also wasn't uncommon for the pagan to mix blood into wine during their sacrifices and drink it. And the really crazy guys, they would drink the blood of their enemies, other humans, as they gave sacrifices. Now, to the Jews, this is extremely offensive because Yahweh says the blood is where the life is, right? He said through Moses, anyone also of the people of Israel or the strangers who sojourn among them who takes in hunting any beast or bird that may be eaten shall pour out its blood, cover it with the earth. In that regard, he says, bury it. In other words, 
hang it, go ahead and hang it, just like the pagans do, but slit its throat and let that blood drain out. Why? For the life of every creature is its blood. Deuteronomy 12.6 says the same thing. You shall not eat the blood. You shall pour it out on the earth like water. Verse 23. Only be sure that you do not eat the blood, for the blood is the life. You shall not eat the life with the flesh. To ancient Israelites, blood was the emblem of life. Okay, it was the equivalent to, to life itself. Not only that, but it was considered a sacred symbol because it was the blood that temporarily atoned for the sins of the people. Very special. So James says, be considerate of your brothers when eating. Stay away from the blood. That's what kosher means, by the way. If you've ever seen kosher, it means uh, it's meat that comes from so-called clean animals that have the blood completely drained from them. There's no blood in that meat. So the purpose of this letter to the Gentiles is just to be aware of these things. He says, your customs, our customs, our backgrounds, they are opposed to each other regarding these specific practices. Have some sensitivity toward your brethren. Then he gives us a reason why in verse 21. Don't miss this. He says, abstain from these things. Abstain from these things. Why? For from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him. For he is read in every Sabbath in the synagogues. If you go into a synagogue uh, trying to preach the gospel of Christ while actively participating in these things, not only will you be an offense to unbelieving Jews and a stumbling block to those who uh, may come to the faith, but you'll offend your brothers who still rightly hold Moses in high regard and find that kind of behavior repulsive, detestable. So why do it? Again, we're brothers in Christ here. We're sisters in Christ. Jesus said to his disciples, he said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are to love one another. Then he says, by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is the law of love. We are to love one another just as he what? Loved us, that's right. How we love one another has an impact on our witness to the world. Uh, how we love one another, at least a according to Jesus himself, as one of the key indicators and evidences of true and saving faith. Now, it's important to reiterate at this point, as Tom Constable said, James was not putting Gentile converts under the Mosaic law by imposing these restrictions. He was urging them to limit their uh, exercise of Christian liberty in order to make their witness unsaved, to unsaved Jews more effective and their fellowship uh, with saved Jews more harmonious. It's all about maintaining harmony and unity within the church. That's what this whole section is about. Maintain that, that unity. I know that took a lot of our time this morning. I'm fighting with that clock here. It took a lot of time, but for good reason. Okay, we had to do it. Let's be sensitive to how we operate with, with the people in our body. Uh, let's, let's be driven by love and compassion, not merely Knowledge, knowledge puffs up. Knowledge makes us prideful, but love builds up. And it will prove to have a unifying effect on this body. Uh, knowledge without love is very dangerous uh, in the church. It's very dangerous. There's a lot of people who know a lot of things. But if they don't have love, this is very dangerous. 
speaking of unification, uh, look at verse 22. Then it seemed good to the apostles and the elders with the whole church to choose men from among them and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. Unity between the apostles, the elders, and the whole church? This is a miracle in itself, right? He says everyone was pleased. How is everyone pleased? Because they were subject to the will of God the Holy Spirit. I love what John MacArthur said on this. The Spirit never disagrees with himself. And if everyone is Spirit-filled and Spirit-controlled, then everyone's going to come out agreeing. And if somebody doesn't agree, then one side or the other needs to reconsider their own relationship to the Spirit of God or their own information on the decision. And that's true. I'll just tell you. I'll give you an example. Our elders' meetings here, we don't, get, we don't make a, a decision unless we all agree on it, right? If any of us have any reservations, we table it. Or we find another way to move forward. We, we don't vote. There's no majority. We all just submit to the Spirit's leading. And, and one of the ways we know if, the, if it's of the Lord is that we all have perfect agreement. Or we defer, then we move forward. Not, not one of us has any more sway than the other. Uh, ultimately, it's Christ's church anyway, so we would be foolish to do anything other than seek the unity that comes by submitting to his sovereign will for this body. And I believe we've uh, had a marvelous spirit of unity throughout the whole church, throughout this whole body here. All parts have been working together for the, not the glory of ourselves, but the glory of the Lord. Verse 22 says it seemed good to everyone to send these four guys, Paul, Barnabas, Judas, and Silas, with a letter to the churches outside of Jerusalem. We're going to hear more about Silas uh, in the coming weeks here. Needless to say, they sent Judas and Silas along with Paul and Barnabas to confirm the decision of the apostles in Jerusalem. Four witnesses they had to deliver this letter face to face. Now, the letter, okay, we already looked at, at the things which the Gentiles were expected to or ex exhorted to abstain from, but I want you to see something else, okay? Look at the beginning of the letter in verse 23. The brothers, both the apostles and the elders, to the brothers of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Greetings. Brothers to the brothers. Verse 24. Since we have heard that some persons have gone out from us and troubled you with words, unsettling your minds, although we gave them no instruction, it has seemed good to us, having come to one accord, to choose men and send them to you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we've seen that already, right? In Paul's first missionary journey, uh, he was stoned. This word for trouble here in verse 24 is better translated confused or disturbed. And the words of these Judaizers, Judaizers disturbed the very souls of these Gentile converts to Christianity when they said you must be circumcised or submit yourself to the law of Moses to be saved because it made them question everything. Everything we talked about earlier, right? Finally, they had true contentment, true peace, true joy, true hope. Now you're saying it's all not real? You're saying this isn't legit? And James says, we didn't tell him to say that. We heard about what happened with Peter and Cornelius in 10 years ago. So we're all of one mind, one accord. We're all together. We're all united in sending these four brothers with this letter to put your souls at ease. Your faith is sincere. Your everlasting souls are secure in Christ. We're all brothers in Christ. Now, as brothers, we're going to mention... Uh, you know, submitting to the law. We're not going to mention submitting to the law or getting circumcised again, but why don't you show us a bit of respect 
and brotherly love by abstaining from these four things. Notice in verse 28 who James attributes all this unity to, by the way. We don't want to miss this. So as for it has seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us to lay on you no greater burden than these requirements. Again, this is all of the Spirit. And the Spirit never fights against the Spirit. He concludes the letter at the end of verse 29. He says, if you keep yourself from these things, you will do well. Not you will be saved. That already happened, right? But that you will do well. Farewell. What a great letter. What a great letter. So we've seen brotherly exhortation, brotherly unification, brotherly consultation. Now we see the brotherly exultation in verse 30. So when they were sent off, they went down to Antioch. Having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. When they had read it, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. They rejoiced. Uh, The weight that was placed on them by the erroneous words of those wicked false teachers, it had been lifted. The apostles, the, the brethren in Jerusalem affirmed it. They were truly members of the body of Christ. They were truly in Christ. And it was not based on anything they did other than uh, exercising the faith that was given to them by the author of faith through the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit who now indwelled them. And they rejoiced because of this letter. (laughs) They rejoiced over the sufficiency of God's grace. And they all came together to hear it, just like we're doing right now. And they likely read it out loud, just like we're doing right now. And they were all tremendously encouraged by that reading, just as we should be encouraged now. Finally, Luke closes this section with verse 32. He says, And Judas and Silas, who were themselves prophets, encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. That's a sweet verse to a preacher of the Bible. With many words, he says. (laughs) After, After they had spent some time, they were sent off in peace by the brothers those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas, they remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. So you see what began with troublesome, burdensome, disturbing, false teaching ends with strengthening and encouragement, peace and rejoicing. Praise the Lord. Amen? What a marvelous section of scripture this is. It's been a great three weeks. Uh, it's, this is a pivotal moment in the history of the church a monumentally significant occasion that has had a lasting impact on all generations. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. It's settled. It's finished. It's over. It's been determined, it's been decided according to the infinite wisdom and the sovereign will of the Lord of the heavens of the earth who has given us, even us, the ability to extend that same grace to one another as well. And that's worth praising his name together this morning. Amen? Let's do that now as Peter and the music team come up to lead us in musical worship. We hope that you have been ministered to through this week's exposition of God's Word. If you would like more information about our church and services, please visit our website or email us at info, that's I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Again, that's info, I-N-F-O, at lakewoodbiblechapel.org. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Lakewood Bible Chapel.